Encrypting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's one 450 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be here. I am your host with another episode of the Ask Noah Show this hour. We'll open up with our first feedback. It says, uh, this comes from Richard. He says, hi, Noah. I like your shows. I just heard episode 220. Yep, I know I'm a little behind where you advised with someone with a typing disability to use a trackball with an on-screen keyboard. Years ago, as a Windows administrator, I found and installed Dasher, an on-screen keyboard for an employee with a disability. I was flabbergasted and amazed. I'd never heard of this name before or after. Dasher is an input method that you can use with a trackball, a joystick, or even a blowing through a straw. And with a little practice, type up to 20 words per minute. The beautiful thing about Dasher is that it's available under the GPL for Windows, macOS, and Linux. Please mention this in one of your future shows so that people with disabilities can use this on-screen keyboard. It can be found here. Interfence? dot uk slash dasher thanks and keep up what you're doing greetings from a dutch previous windows administrator now working for apple but a linux advocate for anyone who likes to hear about it richard and richard of course we appreciate your call we'll have a link for that in the show notes it's um, i'll tell you what one of the most rewarding things about doing the show has been watching how some people come in with a problem and other people come with a solution and i we started because we wanted to help people wanted to go out there and and, and and, and share knowledge with people, and it turned into be a, a much bigger community effort than I would have ever imagined. So thank you for continuing to participate in that. Uh, another reminder, I'll just mention, as we continue on, we're doing feedback in a whole new way, and this facilitates this kind of dialogue and this kind of discussion. So when you send in feedback, that helps us determine what we're going to do with future shows. Again, calls go to the front of the line, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Email Live at AskNoahShow.com. Tony calls from Toronto. Hey, Tony, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Yeah, hi there, Noah. Uh, thanks for taking my call. My uh, my question today is if you have a good alternative for Active Directory. So we're running a Active Directory in our office, and it's 2012, and I'm you know looking soon to be replacing it. And I'm wondering if there might be a good open source alternative that uh, ideally, you know, with a GUI and easy to administer because I don't want to be going into the configuration files every once in a while when somebody uh, you know, gets hired. And uh, something ideally that could uh, also control the logins for, if possible, for all of our Windows um, desktops. Sure. So um, there's a couple of different uh, ways you can go about doing that that I'm familiar with. Um, the I guess the most direct replacement, as it were, uh, is Raz uh, DC, and it's a smaller project um, that is essentially an open source implementation of uh, of Active Directory of an Active Directory domain controller uh, for for uh, for for Linux and for open source. And so it has a little um, dashboard that you can use. And I've actually met the guy that does this, and he he I was, I was crazy. I was looking into a project trying to do probably something similar to what you're trying to do, and I. Uh, 
read about Brian King and, and clicked on his name and, and found out, oh my gosh, this guy lives in Grand Forks, North Dakota. What are the odds? And so I sent him a contact and, and went out for coffee with him and, and got to visit with him a little bit. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a fantastic little uh, projects. Uh, essentially, though, what what he's doing is leveraging the Active Directory components uh, and and functionality uh, of Samba, uh, and just providing a nice interface and 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 making those kinds of things work. Uh, so you can learn more about the, his project at rasdc.com. Now, another thing that I, I will tell you, the more um, I guess industry recommended solution. If you went to, if you hired AltaSpeed as a company, for example, or if you went to Red Hat and said, Hey, what would you suggest? Um, they're going to recommend something like free IPA, at least in the open source world. And I think they have their own Red Hat identity management thing, but, um, free IPA and free IPA is a identity management system. It's actually an integrated system that does a whole bunch of things, including identity management. But the, And so you can incorporate things like uh, trusts and policies and, and those that kind of stuff. But underneath Active Directory, it's um, there's a couple of components that bring authentication and all of that together. Free IPA does almost the same thing. Um, and yes, it does support uh, enrolling Windows clients as well as Linux clients, so it should work on both. You can learn more about that at uh, freeipa.org. Okay. All right, awesome. Is that... Um, if I have one more question, if sure. that's, uh, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, uh, I've been using KDE uh, from your, uh, you know, have you been talking about it on the show? Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that if, if I'm installing something that's a snap, uh, the... The theming is sometimes yeah. off, and it's. Uh, I was wondering, yeah, if you had something for it. I did some quick googling, but uh, I thought maybe you might have a better answer for me. I don't. I uh, that bothers me too. I have um, what was that? Make MKV at night. I'm, I'll be ripping. Uh, I'll be ripping DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever, and and everything else in my entire desktop environment uh, is breeze dark. And then I open up Make MKV, and boom, there it is, big white box. And yeah, you're right. The theming is totally off. Um, I don't know how to fix that. Uh, and if somebody, does, but the good news about this program, I promise you, if there is a way to resolve it, I'll get no. There's probably five emails in the box already of uh, people that are running to their computers to let us know. So I'll, I'll, you'll know when I know. How's that for an answer? Oh, that's awesome. And I'll, I'll definitely, I'll check out uh, free IPA. Then I'll give that a look. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, Thank free, you. yeah. You bet. Free IPA, and I, I would also, uh, I'd also take a look at um, RazDC too. Uh, RazDC. Check out both those. RazDC.com. Free IPA. Dot org. Again, 855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624. Email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Uh, email comes in from Chris. Chris says, hey, Noah, I'm a long-time listener. Love the show and all of the knowledge you offer. I'm looking for a USB-C dock for my Gazelle 14. After trying a couple docks, I couldn't get the display to work, although the USB audio Ethernet ports all worked fine. Contacted, contacted System76 and was told that my machine doesn't support Thunderbolt and therefore displays wouldn't work. While listening to your show in the car, my podcast player somehow magically started playing an old episode, episode 103. It was cued up to the part of the show where you talked about the Dell WD-15. Needless to say, I was extremely excited to hear about this dock, but I ran into the same issues. Display's not working. You did give me a 100% NOAA guarantee, so I'm looking for some help here. Thanks for all you do for the community, and keep up the great work. So, Chris, you're right. comes with a 100% guarantee. Let me explain what's going on. So, first of all, the WD-15 is not a Thunderbolt dock. Um, the WD-15 is a USB dock that uses the USB-C connector, and therefore should work perfectly fine with your uh, with your System76 Gazelle, because the Gazelle's USB port is the Type-C USB port. 
Um, as to getting the displays to work, that's one of those things where if it's, it sounds weird, but if I was in front of it, I could fix it in five minutes. Trying to figure that out over email, probably not going to work so well. So what I would invite you to do is either give me a call uh, at customer care, 866-280-1433. And what we'll do is I'll, I'll make a note here. And uh, if Chris calls in with, uh, with some USB issues, one of our techs will help you walk through that and get that set up because I'm, I'm confident there's a configuration thing going on. Um, there, there's something there. Uh, because there's there's no reason that shouldn't work. That is, it's literally just a USB video card that you're plugging into your computer. And so, uh, and I I know System76 makes rock solid machines, and I know that they ship them only with a rock solid operating system that is Ubuntu based. And so, we can get your displays to work. Just give us a call. Our fourth email is calling Noah out. This comes in from John. Hi Noah, this is John from California. I am the same John that wrote the email about your soft spot for Red Hat. Called in a few episodes back asking about Linux user ad. Called in last week asking about a Raspberry Pi freezing issue. And the same John that told you that I've been listening to Ask Noah since episode one. As you can gather, I'm a huge fan of the show and love to listen in the car wherever I can. My full-time job is a software engineer, and I've been doing it for almost 14 years. I love open source, and I've started to love Linux, in part thanks to you. My day job requires me to interact and use a bunch of open source libraries. But I work for a private company who writes their code and treats proprietary software. I thought about projects. I'd like to try about starting a business. And I consider doing it in an open source manner. But that's the point at which I would like to do to make a buck partway anyway. So let's look at your business, AltaSpeed. You use open source software. You advocate for open source software. You help others with software. But the business that makes you money is actually not very open. In an episode of Ask Noah, you said that you had an employee left and upon leaving realized that the information that AltaSpeed had was more valuable than he left. He's referring to the um, our knowledge base. He says, I believe this database called OS Ticket. There may have been some episodes where you answer a question during the show and say, oh, I have that information in OS Ticket at AltaSpeed. So I'm here to, writing to say, why don't you do as you preach? You preach that software is an engineer. I need my code. Potentially my business IP that separates me from the competitors to be open source, yet AltaSpeed, the IT specs, documentation, information gathered, scripts, and everything doesn't contain the information that are needed to keep secrets like client info, financial data, IP addresses, passwords. That's not in the open, John. So I appreciate you reaching out, John, and I wanted to address this email for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, to offer some uh, some correction and clarification, um, but also because I think it is valid to have a discussion about why companies should be in the open and why they should uh, eat their dog food. And I can tell you, if you wanted to come here to Grand Forks, North Dakota, it gets a little colder than it does in California, and you came and followed me around for a week, I think you would, I think you would have a change of mind, my friend. Um, and, I, and I say that respectfully, but uh, everything we do is open. Everything we do is open. There, there, every client that we work for, the, the documentation of everything that we've done, every username, every password, every IP address, the way we've set it up, it's all provided to them. That, that's for every client, whether they want it or not. A lot of them don't. A lot of them just look in there and like, oh, that's the big binder full of stuff that the IT guy left. I, that's a lot of people. And then there are other companies, like a firm that just literally just hired us a few weeks ago, um, that we're building a server for. And they came to us and said, listen, we're, we're pretty IT savvy. We kind of have this thing down. Here's what we want. We want somebody to help us when we get in over our head. So we want you to order a server. We want you to set it up. Then we want you to teach us how you set it up and teach us how to manage it so that we can do it ourselves. We said, yeah, absolutely nothing we would like to do better, right? Um, as far as stuff that isn't available in the public, it's not 
not available in the public because I want to keep a secret behind doors and I'm not willing to share it with you. In fact, if I added up the amount of time that it costs me to come do a free show to give inf- whatever information that you're looking for to include the stuff that's available in OS Ticket away for free uh, and then the time to prep that show, it, it literally cost me thousands of dollars to do that. Um, but I do it because I'm passionate about empowering people to use their own technology. And I'm passionate about getting people to a point where they can understand their technology and make their own decisions. And so the, it wouldn't serve any of my goals. It would serve no purpose uh, of the business that I created specifically to achieve that, to put information behind a locked vault. So that's never my intent. Um, the problem is we just don't have time. We don't have – the way that that knowledge base has come about is we have technicians over the field over the last 15 years – that when they come across a problem in the field, they make a knowledge base article about it. An OS ticket, one of the reasons I love it, is it allows you to, when a ticket comes in, and there's a particular ticket that is remarkably, uh, that, that perfectly summarizes how to fix a given issue, and we see that thing come up over and over again, we make that ticket a knowledge base item. And so the next time that you go over to client XYZ, and that weird pop-up that pops up that says this, you know to click on these 17 little things to make that thing not happen and to fix that thing because the last guy already went through Microsoft and and fixed all of that. Well, the employee that you're referring to that left, it wasn't it was a it was a kind hearted thing. It wasn't like he was upset or angry. In fact, the reason that I knew about his feelings is because he reached out and said, hey, could you send me the steps on how to do this thing? I know we had it in the knowledge base. Weirdly enough, I can't find that information on the Internet. I said, yeah, sure. No problem. Send it over to him. He did the thing. But um, but yeah, it's it, that I mentioned those things as an aside or in passing in conversation. But I, 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 you know, if you if you have any doubts about that, what I invite you to do, John, go look at our GitLab account. Um, everything we do for clients, every little project that we do internally, some of them stupid. We had a broadcast client that we literally just needed to know if they were on the air or not. And so our developer wrote a little thing that turns a block green uh, when there's audio coming from the default input and then turns the block red and it runs as a little web server. Uh, it's a stupid little piece of code. But and but but we did it for our client. We got paid to do it. So guess what? There's an open source license behind it. It's available on our GitLab. Um, so yeah, I, 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 uh, I think it's probably just a, a misunderstanding, uh, try to give you a scope into a business, um, in just a couple of moments on a 45 minute hour, 45 minute to an hour program, probably just doesn't translate very well. Um, but I'm very proud of the open source work that we do. And I'm very proud of the, the commitment to the community we have. And I'm proud that I think everybody that works for UltaSpeed is in some way or another connected to some form of the open source community outside of this company, and I'm proud of that too. Our pick of the week this week is OpenVPN Admin. It's a web interface for OpenVPN. Operating a diverse infrastructure for many customers, we quickly realized that we needed a convenient tool to manage OpenVPN certificates and users a long time ago. In a nutshell, we wanted to have a simple web interface instead of going through servers, containers, and running all of these CLI commands. Since existing solutions that meet our requirements, including and then they list a bunch of them. Our commercial, we've created our own and been using it a couple of years as our own web instance. It's called OpenVPN-Admin. It allows you to do things like add users, generate certificates, revoke and reissue certificates, generate a ready-to-use config file, provide Prometheus uh, metrics such as certificate expiration dates, number of users, so on and so forth. It uh, lets you set the client config directory, run in master-slave mode, and set and change the password for additional authorization at OpenVPN. So just a fantastic um, little project. And we've gotten to the point where OpenVPN, and I'll be honest with you, 
WireGuard is starting to challenge us a little bit, starting to change it a little bit, but for the most part, when you're in any sort of environment with any scale to it, any business with any scale to it, you're still going open VPN. And so the fact that uh, we have some of these more easy-to-use web interfaces, um, going back to that previous email about allowing our customers to be able to manage their stuff themselves when they want to, stuff like this makes it super easy. And, hey, I'm never going to complain if there's a tool makes it easier to do my job. So make sure to check out make sure to check out openvpn admin We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Ruby on Rails hit somewhat of a snag. Uh, the maintainer of a software library called Shared Mime Info uh, told the maintainer of the Ruby library uh, called Mime Magic that, hey, there's a problem here because some of the code which has been incorporated um, is has an incompatible software license. The Shared Mime Info library is licensed under under the GPL v2 license. And MindMagic is listed as an MIT license. So if that doesn't mean much to you, the GPL is a far more restrictive license than the MIT license in terms of how you can modify code. If you start with something at GPL, it needs to remain GPL, whereas MIT basically says you can take and do almost whatever you want with it. Um, and so the MIT license is is very popular among projects that want to take something that was created in open source and then suck it up and use it however they want to, whereas GPL is very popular in codes that want to start with something open source, create something new open source, but continue down that open source track. Quote, using a GPL file as a source makes your whole code base derived work, making it all GPL. So I think it's pretty important that this problem gets corrected before somebody uses it in a pure MIT code base or a closed source application. And um, he gives some steps that are, are necessary to, to, to make the necessary corrections. And um, essentially, the response was they archived my magic. And that means that uh, it's no longer being actively developed. And, of course, this had the unfortunate effect of breaking the popular web development framework Ruby on Rails, which uses my magic as a dependency. And it also affects 172 other packages, which touch between... Uh, 577,000 different software repositories. So the first thing I want to point out here, because I, I thought it was pretty cool, is that they did something about this, right? When you come across these kinds of license and compatibilities, they had the choice of just burying it. They could have just ignored it and continued on and waited until it actually bit somebody or until some lawyer wanted to fight about it in court. But they actually owned up to it and said, hey, no, 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 no. This is not right. This is not what the intention of the author of the code wanted um, and that's not that there's not fair use of the code because we're breaking the agreement for using the code. And so we're going to head this issue off right now. Everybody has been responding really, really well. You would think that there would be some sociopolitical angle here. There'd be something to get bent out of shape about. There's not. All the developers are just really working well. Now, that I don't want to undersell the level of difficulty of, of what they're up, up against here because so far as I understand it, it is quite a process to replace my magic. There are a couple of other alternatives that can be used, which would have a more compatible license structure, but it's going to take some significant work to get them uh, merged in properly with the project. And the other problem is they can't really relicense the entire Ruby on Rails project, or excuse me, Rails project is GPL at this point, because there are so many projects 
that are deployed under the assumption that they're not using GPL code and instead they're using the more permissible MIT license. So nobody really knows exactly how they're going to fix this. And in the moral of the story, I guess, is make sure that you've accounted for every bit of dependency and every bit of reused code in your project because ultimately you're responsible for it. Ubuntu 2104 testing week. This is a really exciting initiative. Now, uh, Alan Pope, uh, also known as Popey in the community, um, made a blog post uh, or a post on the Ubuntu discourse form talking about the 2004 testing week. And on April 1st, they're going to be releasing the 2104 beta image. And after halting all the new changes between then and the final release three weeks later, all efforts are going to be focused on ISO testing, bug reporting, and fixing bugs. And so essentially, they're going to go out. In, well, they're not going on the community. The community is actually coming around to do this. One of the things that's so fascinating about this, the entire community, is a community-led effort, is coming around to say, here's what we're going to do. You're officially done making changes, so this is what we think we're going to push out. Here's the beta. Let's go and spend a week and find every possible bug that we can and send that information back to Canonical so that they have the the, the most up-to-date information and can fix as many of those bugs as possible before 2104 ships. This is a fantastic idea. I think if I think every I think that every software project that scales uh, should have some sort of QA process like this in place, an ability for anyone to participate. Uh, you can download the daily ISO image at cdimage.ubuntu.com slash daily dash live slash current. I'll have that link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. There's also a uh, a free node IRC channel, um, and it is Ubuntu-quality. And uh, so you can join that IRC, Nick. There's also, we'll have a link for you for the web chat that you can access that way if you prefer. And you can chat with people and find out, you know, hey, is this a bug? Should I bother submitting a bug report? Is this something you want to know about? Or am I just doing something wrong here? And there'll be some friendly folks that will say, yeah, no, we want to know about that. Or nope, that's not going to work. Um, but this is the way that we're going to get better. This is the way that uh, that software is, the, the quality of software is going to improve and there, I hear all the time from people. I run into people at conferences. They, how can I contribute? How can I give back to the community? Our community. I'm not a developer. I'm not a system administrator. I'm not. I don't have any skill. This is what you can do if you're one of the people that, even if you're using Linux as a hobby, and you listen to the show and you think, yeah, you know, it's kind of a fun thing I do on the side. Here's your opportunity. Go download an ISO. Put it on your computer. See if you can break it. See what doesn't work, and then give that information back to Canonical. I imagine that to be a very rewarding experience, and I hope that I have the opportunity to participate in it because it sounds like a lot of fun. There is a March update from Pine, uh, actually quite a lengthy update on Pine, and it fo- it covers everything from some of the uh, production issues that they're having, um, getting uh, hardware, to the updates from literally every little product or project that they have going on. And so they actually do a really great job of publishing not only a blog post, but also a little video that explains all of that, and then they break that video apart. So I'd invite you to do uh, go look at that directly at pine64.org. One of the things that they announced is the Pine Phone Beta Edition. It's going to open on March 24th, which at this point is, is past the date. But the Pine Phone Beta Edition is powered by KDE Plasma and the Manjaro Linux operating system. So a while back, they had chosen to standardize on on this operating system. They can still run whatever you want and 
still a phone that's going to support whatever operating system you want. Um, but going forward, when you order the phone, um, this is what it's going to ship with. Now, as a guy who bought a Pine phone and tried literally every mobile operating system I could get my hands on, uh, I 100% agree with this decision. Case KDE Plus, Plasma Mobile and the Majaro Linux operating system is probably the best experience I had on the Pine phone, followed very closely by Postmarket OS, uh, and then everything else kind of followed from there. This phone, the Pine phone, is the is is everybody who has an interest in exploring technology should own one of these devices. If you have any interest in exploring technology, particularly on mobile, you should own one of these devices. If you have kids, you should own one of these devices, because you can purchase the 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 basic device for one hundred forty nine bucks. I would, if I were you, purchase the one for one hundred ninety nine dollars. The difference is the one for 149 is only 2 gigs of RAM and 16 gigabits of eMMC storage. The one for 199 is 3 gigabytes of RAM, 32 gigs of eMMC storage, plus it includes a USB-C dock. The USB-C dock alone is worth 50 bucks, never mind the fact that you get one more gigabyte of RAM and an additional uh, 16 gigs of eMMC storage. Uh, and you, you order this device if you've not played with one, if you've not had the opportunity to put your hands on one. It is phenomenal from the standpoint that it's not a fantastic phone. It's not that it does – it's not going to knock the socks off of somebody who is comparing it to an iPhone 10 or a Samsung uh, S21 or whatever they're on now. Where the value in this phone is the ability to explore technology and play with this stuff. And you take the program Jump Drive and load it onto an SD card and stick it in the phone, turn the phone on, and you can just drag and drop – images onto the eMMC controller. And as a guy who bricked more than a few Android phones back in the day trying to load alternative ROMs on it, I have never been more excited about a company doing stuff. And Pine is the company that that continues to get it right. Every, just every time they release something, every time they do something, I find myself getting excited. So make sure to check out the Pine Phone Beta Edition. Check out KDA Plasma Mobile and Manjaro if you don't, if you already have a Pine Phone. And I'd keep an eye out on their store because my understanding is that the Pine Books will be shipping again fairly soon. If you're not familiar with the Pine Book, it is a very inexpensive, read like a $200, uh, 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 uh very basic powered laptop, uh, for 200 bucks though. Also, it charges with Type C. People keep asking that. Yes, it does. I, uh, in fact, I have not charged it with anything other than my Type-C charger lately, and my Pine book is still going strong. So, pine64.org, pine64.org. Gnome 40. Uh, I spent some time this week on Gnome 40, and I wanted to take some time to give you my initial impressions. So, first of all, uh, it starts with the installer. So, I, for reference, I use Fedora 34, uh, the beta dropped this week, and I picked it up and installed it, and I have never been more proud uh, to say that I'm a Fedora user. So the installer is the Shenzhen of installers. I mean, you're in, you're out, and you're in Fedora. I mean, that's how fast it is. And part of that is they've removed the vast majority of the user details and, 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 and configuration of the computer. And as a guy who owns an IT company, man, was that the right call. Here's the, pr- the, the the problem is we continually approach the Linux operating system up until this point as if it's something that is only for nerds. And that's true. I you know, the vast majority of people that are out there running Linux on their desktops are probably geeks of some nature, right? But there is not an insignificant portion of us that install it and hand that computer for t- to someone else. This has become a thing I've seen lately on eBay now when I buy a lot of my computers used because I'm not paying full price for something that goes down loses half of its value in the first 2 years. Uh, and when I go on, on eBay, a lot of people are either for 
either just because they want to keep the Windows 10 license or because they just don't want to bother reloading or finding the stuff, they, they ship those computers uh, with whatever version of Linux that's on them. Now, I'd, part of me likes to dream that that many people have just switched, and so that's what they reload the machine with. The point is, it's getting to the point where a lot of people are interacting with Linux on a computer that had no intention of necessarily using Linux on a computer. The amount of customers that we get that they simply have an old home machine and they're saying, how do we breathe more life into that? Oh, let's throw this on there. Oh, okay, great. Now I have a free office suite and that mostly all the things click the same. Yeah, great. Awesome. Those people are not an insignificant portion of the Linux user base either. And GNOME 40, it's like it was built for them. And I see that as the guy who has to first install the operating system on the laptop and then hand it to the user. And then they go, well, but my name is spelled like this and I have this thing set up and that. Okay. Well, that would have been real nice to set up afterwards. And that's exactly what the Fedora 34 installer is doing. It lets you pick all of those things after the only thing, the only thing you're doing is you're picking your destination and then you get moving. And so I'm installing to this hard disk. Great. Awesome. Now it's done. Rip the flash drive out. And then you could literally just ship the computer. And it's as if that computer was born to run Fedora 34. So what happens when you reboot? Well, guess what? We start with a start setup. And this is the most professional guided tour of an operating system on any Linux system I've ever used. So I tried to put my brand new Linux eyes on or glasses on. And I've been using distros since I was 11 I don't want to sit there and figure it out. When I get into the the GNOME desktop, even though I've used GNOME for years, I don't want to have to think, well, how do I do this or how do I do that? That little guided tour that says, here's what's new. Here's the basics on how to get started. Absolutely fantastic. The other thing, the, I think the, like the first or second screen was connecting to online accounts. And listen, since the pandemic broke out, we've gotten to a point now where everybody has kind of picked their camp for cloud providers. I've lost that battle, at least by and large in the world. Like people want to pick a cloud provider. And so it's all, oh, that's the office that uses Google. That's the office that uses, you know, Microsoft. That's the office. That Guess what one of those options is in the Fedora 34 installer. And it's been there for a while, but it stands out to me now post pandemic is you have the option of choosing NextCloud right in the middle of Microsoft office and Google office. And NextCloud, right in the middle, that you can sign into. So when you work for a company like AltaSpeed that uses NextCloud, you have the opportunity of signing in to that account right alongside your your partner who works for company XYZ and they use uh, you know Office or company ABC who uses Google. And then the enterprise login for Active Directory. Again, something that's been there for, for a little while stands out to me more post-pandemic. The ability to log, authenticate into Active Directory. Everything that you would need to have an enterprise workstation operating system running on your laptop or on your desktop means that now when you order those computers, those ThinkPads or ThinkCenters from Lenovo that come pre-installed with Fedora and you plug them into your regular office uh, environment, even if you knew nothing at all about Linux, you would still have the opportunity to use all of your network resources. And I think that's really, that's really impressive and exciting. Again, 855 450 Noah, 1-855-450-6624, the email, live at com. It was weird to see Facebook in there. I'll throw that out there. So you get into GNOME 40 and then starts off the tour. And again, this is uh, this was super exciting. So there's a little bit of room for improvement in that uh, some of the tour, some of parts of the tour 
had these little animated gestures that showed exactly what you were supposed to be doing, which I thought was really fantastic. And then all the parts of them just had a little brief description of what you're supposed to be doing. And because I'd used GNOME, I knew where to find the thing that they were talking about. So, for example, I knew where my apps were. Um, but I would like, to, I hope down the road that we get to a point where they can incorporate some more of those little smooth animation things because, man, they look sharp. Um, so you get to the point where it walks you through, here's the activities, here's the, the workspaces, so on and so forth. Then we get to gestures. And I, I've never used gestures on any operating system. I don't spend enough time on a machine outside of my own machine for there to be any real time saving advantage of me to, to learn whatever gestures you have on your machine. But GNOME 42 or so, guess what I learned today? Um, gestures, holy mangoes, gestures are cool. So it, I, I start to get in the mindset of when I'm sitting at this computer and I'm going to use this and I'm, I'm, I'm going mission critical, I have things to get done. And I start working on something. And all of a sudden I think, oh, you know what I got to do? I got to pull a file up that I downloaded. I got to go over my email, download that thing. Swipe up, throw my, throw my current workspace off to the side for a second. I need to go do something else. Then I switch over to another workspace by swiping, swiping to the side and start a new thread. Or if it really is just a file, I'll just open the file manager and, and grab that. But in any event, I found myself after just a few hours of using it, getting into this, this habit of work, 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 work. Okay. I have to context shift. I have to switch to something. And then this almost fluid like motion that just happened. Oh, now this thing is there. And I found it so much more of an intuitive way to interact with switching systems or switching tasks, I guess, rather, um, than in any other desktop environment. And it, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I'm, I'm switching to GNOME. That's the desktop for me. But I have to say, I've been, I've been using it for however long Fedora 34 has been out now for a little while. And, uh, it's been, it's been fantastic. And, uh, gestures are my biggest takeaway from that. Um, so the GNOME 40 team, what they really nailed right here was, they set out on a mission to understand the feedback from people that use this on a daily basis. And it shows because so many of these little paper cut things have been tweaked and the, the system guides you through the parts that you can tell uh, were, were sore spots, things that people didn't really understand or things that even I as an as experienced GNOME user hadn't, wouldn't have thought to look into, right? But this idea that you can just, you know, throw the workspace up, swipe over to wherever other thing you want to be and then pull back down to, to get back into that work mode. It, the, the, between that, the animations, it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. It's quite an experience. And so I invite you to check it out because the revamp of GNOME 40 decidedly lives up to expectations. I, I would say that overall it feels faster. Last time I used GNOME, I think was 2017, 2018, at least full time. And, um, it's decidedly feels faster. The only thing is there's, and you know, with every, depends on how, how far you want to nitpick, but there are a couple of things I thought there were some room for improvements. You know, I go to change the theme because it's 2021. Guess what? Dark theme is reigns supreme, right? And so I go to, I type in themes. I can't remember exactly where, where to do it in, in, in GNOME. And maybe there's a better way to do this. And if so, reach out to me. But the recommended solution from the activity search was install GNOME tweaks. So I think to myself, oh, okay, so that might be how I do it. Install GNOME Tweaks, sure enough, there's my theme change, and I can change it to Attawa Dark. Are you kidding me? Like, I should be able to change the theme of the operating system from within the operating system. That should not require an internet package and an additional package to 
to be able to do that. And then, like I say, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. But it's clear that they paid a lot of attention, a lot of attention to what, what the community had asked for and what people that use this day to day have asked for. And the thing that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of promise for Gnome is the following. One, consider the fact that almost every major distro is now going to, um, Gnome as their default desktop as they're shipping. And, also consider that when you're looking from a funding perspective, it's much easier to go to a community and say, hey, donate money here, spend time investing in fixing bugs here because it will pay off in the end. When Alan Pope, well, I, I shouldn't put it on Alan Pope. When, when, when the community came up and, and, and came, came to Alan and said, hey, will you help us promote this event to do community testing week on Ubuntu? All of that testing is going to reflect in more improvements and feedback to GNOME Upstream. And now Red Hat's doing the same thing, right? Red Hat, Canonical, all these companies are testing against this one desktop environment. And then they're, and then all of those changes are getting pushed back and going back home. And so then rising tides, right? We all get a little further ahead. And so would definitely invite, so I invite you to do two things. I'd, I would invite you to check out Fedora uh, 34 specifically uh, for GNOME. I'm going to hold off actually uh, really digging in deep to Fedora 34 until it's out of beta and, and the final production is out. And as I usually do with Fedora, I will give it a few weeks um, and, and let the, let some other people that really want to be the early adopters do that. And then I'll push it and, I'll, and I'll, then I'll adopt it and I'll guarantee you I won't have any problems whatsoever with it. Um, uh, the 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 upgrade process on Fedora has been nothing short of spectacular. But as I came away with Fedora 34, I, I guess my initial takeaways were one, it was faster. Two, GNOME 40, holy cow, what a revamp. Three, gestures are amazing. And then four, it's it's interesting to watch the direction that Red Hat is is taking Fedora Workstation. It really is. Um, I think for a long time there has been a a growing need for a company that can deliver a business-style desktop on Linux. And I think that has been missing up until now. I think if it had existed, I think Google and Amazon would have taken more advantage of it. Um, and they didn't. They went and found their own solutions or built their own solutions. And so as, I, as, I'm, as I'm clicking through Fedora 34 uh, workstation and I'm watching the setup process almost identically mirror many of the corporate setups that we work on, there is more configuration ability and, and setup options in Fedora 34 than there are in Chromebooks, right? And those are used, and those are used not only at Google proper, but they're also used in any business, uh, that has G Suite and wants a cheap way to deploy hardware to employees that are managed by the, uh, by the organization. Uh, and so when I look at how now you can have that same, a lot of the same advantages that exist with a office switching over to G Suite and, and shipping Chromebooks. You have a lot of those same advantages by having a NextCloud provider and buying laptops from Lenovo and having the opportunity to sign in. And you get all of the same kind of functionality that you would get. All those contacts come down. All the calendaring events come down. It syncs your 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 files. And so if you have files that are syncing around with, with the cloud, all of those conveniences that people are coming to expect and more so coming to expect in 2021. Now those features are available on an open source platform. And for once, I'm actually really excited and passionate about my team because every time that I, in, in my lifetime, 
as I've watched a massive opportunity for Linux to take over or or make some make some serious ground. Right. And 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 win people over by being a better alternative. Every time in my lifetime that I've seen that happen, there's been something that that didn't quite line up. Right. And so we have this massive, you know, Windows Vista uh, catastrophe. And that's about the time that Ubuntu chooses to redo their uh, their desktop environment. They're going to switch to Unity. And then we come up on this on this massive Windows 10 thing. And that's about the time that Gnome decides to go from, uh, you know, to switch over to a new version of Gnome and KD decides to go to a different version of, of KD and everybody kind of iterates a little bit and then Canonical switches over to Gnome. And so there's, there's been all of this turnover and now we've hit another point in history where to a certain degree, because of circumstance, people are now more than ever concentrating on getting solutions that work for them because the only place they have to use it is in their house and their connection back to the office or the way that they interface with the rest of their colleagues is no longer the corporate provided computer that that is just given and, and you just use the shared network resources that exist in your office. Today, a lot of people are setting those up in their homes. And so what we what we what the ideal candidate there is software that allows you to do all of the things that you want to do for work. It allows you to communicate with all of the places and entities that you have to communicate to get your day job done. And at the same time, allows you the freedom and the flexibility and the autonomy to still own the device that you, you paid for, that you have in your house, the thing that has, that actually controls the camera and the microphone and all of the things that, that would invade your privacy. And to a certain degree, we're backtracking that with, by installing a bunch of proprietary stuff that circumvents all that. But I digress. The Gnome 40 is is nothing short of perfect timing, and Fedora's decision to ship Gnome 40 uh, is 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 fantastic. The early adopters right on it. You know, it's, Gnome comes out and makes these changes, and right away, Gnome is re- er, Fedora 34 is ready to ship these things, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. And it's it, what will be interesting to see is with with the combination of the partnership with Lenovo. The updates to GNOME 40, which are fantastic, and then the complete tune of Fedora with their community so that when issues come up or when things are have rough edges, those issues get addressed right away. 855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Um, I want to talk briefly about um, this article. The, the SEC is suing library over the sales of cryptocurrency and quite frankly this puts the entire in cryptocurrency industry at risk and so i i've i've not had a lot of time to do a lot of digging on this but um uh, the 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 short version is that the company behind the open source decentralized blockchain based library network um which is a video platform that kind of takes on youtube in a blockchain or a uh, in a blockchain style format, um, they allege that the that library's sale of library credits (LBC) cryptocurrency constitutes an unregistered security offering under the Securities Act of 1933. Uh, they say that the LBC is used to perform various functions on library networks, such as sending tips, publishing and boosting posts, buying and selling digital content. It can also be bought and sold on several cryptocurrency exchanges. The complaint won't impact library channels, library content, or LBC token holdings, according to Library. Library adds that LBC will remain usable regardless of the outcome of this complaint. However, Library warned that if the complaint is successful, it would advance an aggressive 
disastrous new standard that would make almost all blockchain token securities. The complaint invokes the Howey test, a four criteria that were established by the Supreme Court in 1946 in the SEC versus W.J. Howey to determine whether a transaction qualifies as an investment contact and is considered a security under the U.S. security laws to allege that library offered and sold investment contracts which offered and sold LBC. Under the Howey test, transactions are deemed to be an investment contract when there's an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectations of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. The SEC claims that individuals and, enti- and entities that purchased LBC from libraries invested in a common enterprise because the fortunes of the LBC holders' investments were also aligned with library success or failures, and that LBC holders were reasonably expected to profit from libraries' efforts because library-led S- uh, LBC holders to believe that the value of LBC would would appreciate based on libraries' efforts. Based on these allegations, the SEC is seeking a permanent injunction that would restrain library from selling LBC or any unregistered digital asset securities offering a discouragement for the ill-gotten gains and appropriate civil monetary penalties. So I, before the show, I was talking with um, some of the people that hang out in our pre-show room, which, by the way, you can join. You can join by going to geeklab.ninja. You can join by uh, going to Element and joining the Geek Lab and joining our Jitsi room. Um, so I'll have you guys on if you want to add anything to the conversation. But the best we could come up with is th- that this is the this is a, a a situation in where there is a U.S. company that is involved here. Because for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why why library of all the places. Let's assume for a moment that it has nothing to do with content and that it has nothing to do with trying to limit people from creating content. It seems strange that the that the SEC would want to go after library. There's plenty of other organizations that are selling uh, that are selling uh, uh, their tokens inside of their ecosystem uh, for various things. I suppose the difference here is that people put content on library specifically to get views and tips and those kinds of things, and so maybe that's the maybe that's the route that they're going after. Does uh, does anybody in the Jitsi room have a hot take? I'm not so sure about especially the hot take, but so much as it really kind of feels like uh, they're looking to force some sort of a policy change or at least get some sort of a court ruling so they can start finding ways to regulate or control cryptocurrencies in some way. Yeah, I suspect that's been something that's been on the SEC for a while, or at least they've been looking at that for a while. I imagine to a certain extent they probably uh, – regret um the direction that the that or the the decisions that they made early on with cryptocurrency and 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 not stepping in earlier not declaring it um a currency so i i i suspect that there's there's some of that going on but it, it in any event it will affect uh library to some to some degree and their ability to sell lbc and uh, we'll see we'll track that as it uh, as it as it continues on coming up in the next few episodes we are going to have a uh, focused segments. We've been talking about this for a while. Steve Evans, the guy who goes through email and helps me with feedback and helps me understand um, precisely what questions and topics that people are interested in. Um, 
we are starting a a different way to formulate that information. And so as those feedbacks have come in, we've put them into categories, we've addressed them on the air um, as as we can, and now is the time when we're going to take the, the, the bulk of the, hey, you a bunch of people asked this question or that question or that question, and any one of them, it would be somewhat beneficial if we read it on the air and just answered the question. But because there is such a, a large overwhelming interest in this particular topic, we're going to spend some dedicated time on it and we're going to dig into it full force. And so the first one we're going to do is networking. Seems like every few weeks somebody has a networking question, how to get started networking, how the, what equipment people should use. If I'm starting at a home network, does that change the, 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 the kinds of equipments I should buy or the kind of way that I should set it up? I hear everybody talking about a pie hole and DNS servers and DHCP servers and active directory and LDAP and all of those things. How do, what, what parts of those technologies apply to me? What do I want to use at home? What do I want to use in, uh, in, in an office building? Maybe I'm starting a business and I'm wondering what technologies I could use. So I've invited Steve to come on to do a segment. We're going to be doing that. Uh, I believe it's April 6th is when that event is going to happen. And so what we're inviting you to do is, of course, show up that day and participate. You can ask your questions live uh, by showing up and, and, and asking them during the segment. Or you can email them in ahead of time, live at asknoahshow.com, and maybe just say specifically, hey, this is for the upcoming network segment. I have a question, or I have something I thought you guys uh, should add or have. Um, and so if there's something in specific you want us to address or something in specific you want us to answer, we would ask you to send that feedback in, and then we will take a look at that and and formulate a segment around it. And so it's the first one we're doing, and it'll be April 6th. Um, there's going to be two components to it. Uh, there's going to be a, a presentation style where we're just going to start get everybody caught up to the same place. So if you don't have any networking knowledge, um, don't worry. We've got something for you there, and we'll get some of the basic terminology handled and out of the way. And then once we've got that basic layer of of understanding down, then we'll move on and, and kind of address some specific questions and, and try to put our newfound knowledge to the use in troubleshooting. So if you'd like to participate that either from the teaching side or from the question side, we invite you to do so. Again, those questions live at AskNoahShow.com. And finally, Southeast Linux Fest. Southeast Linux Fest is my probably my favorite event of the entire year. And it's my favorite event of the entire year for three reasons. One, it is a Linux event, and we eat, live, and breathe Linux. Linux Fest, uh, 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 Southeast Linux Fest was probably the first experience I had where in the Linux community where there was no such thing as recommending Linux too much. Like the more we can use, the better. And the more places we can shove it, the better. And the more that we can leverage it, the better. This year, self has been uh, in person will not happen because unfortunately, state of North Carolina still requires gatherings to be less than 25 people. And to be honest with you, it just wouldn't be the same if we only had 25 people. So we're not going to do it in person. Instead, we're going to do it virtual. But that doesn't mean that you're going to miss out on much of the experience because the, the, we're going to still have the same speakers that we would have had at the event, at least the, the, the ones that are willing to participate in a virtual event. Um, they're going to be joining us for the event. Uh, in addition to that, we're also going to have community rooms. And so you'll be able to hang out in the various community rooms and talk with the various projects. So it'll be just like you were at an event. Um, you'll have booths to stop at and be able to interface with the same people that you'll see. I'm going to have uh, Noah's booth, which is typically in the corner of Southeast Linux Fest. And so you can come hang out uh, with me and I'll be anchoring the, the coverage of Southeast Linux Fest. Uh, if you want to speak, reach out to, uh, reach out to us, southeastlinuxfest.org. Go over to the website, 
uh, and, and sign up to, to, to deliver a presentation. You're welcome to do that. Uh, and then if you, if nothing else, show up and just listen to the event. You can either watch a stream of the entire event where we'll just have one speaker after the other. If you want an, a more interactive experience, then we invite you to sign up uh, on uh, in in Matrix, uh, you can go over to LinuxDelta.com or Matrix.LinuxDelta.com and sign up for an account there. Uh, you can host your own Matrix instance and use Federation to become a part of that discussion. But that's going to allow for a direct two-way interaction between uh, the individual, between the audience and the speaker. And I I think in some ways that's actually going to do an even better job of building a community because this you know the, the, there there's kind of this sad day right everybody arrives on uh, well for those of us that do it we arrive like the week before but the, the, on the friday of self everybody starts coming through the door and it's kind of an exciting time and you know we're all hanging out and all, now now the conference is kind of kicking up right and so people have been kind of filing in throughout the week but now it's now it's go time and so there's this excitement and it's it's like this it's like this almost 48 hour party. And as Sunday comes around, like right away in the morning, there's some people that just aren't there on Sunday. And then as the day kind of progresses on, people uh, slowly kind of peter out. And it's kind of sad because it's the last time you're going to see your friends for the whole year, right? This year is going to be a little different because, because we're doing it virtually and because of the second time we're doing it virtually, albeit not by our choice. Um, that, that experience doesn't necessarily have to come to an end on Sunday. When we get done with the fest on Sunday, you have the opportunity to continue the relationship with those people, to continue the interaction with the, with the friends that you've made and continue that community throughout the year until next year when we can meet in person. And at that point, when we do meet in person, you better believe that the virtual self will be paying along for the ride. So if you're one of those people that live in a different country or live in a, in a, in an area or have a budget that doesn't allow you to come visit the, the best in person, then this year is the year that you're going to be just like everyone else. And next year, you'll be the one that is hanging out in the virtual booth uh, with me as we kind of look out over self. But either way, I'm excited to build those relationships and I would be excited uh, to have you there either as a speaker or or as uh, just an audience member. Now, if you're interested in volunteering, if you say, hey, speaking isn't my thing, but you know what? I'd be more than happy to help moderate the chat rooms. I'd be more than happy to, hap- happy to help stage the people that are coming in to do presentations for Southeast Linux Festival, then we invite you to do that as a volunteer. And we have a ton of, uh, we have a ton of different things that we could stick you in doing. Um, my mistake last year was I just asked for a bunch of volunteers and didn't have laid out plans for what we were going to do with people. Um, so this year we fixed that. And so we've got some designated community volunteering roles. Uh, and so if you volunteer with your skill set, tell me, uh, send an email to volunteers at mindripmedia.com. Uh, in there, let me know what your skill set is. Hey, I am, uh, I'm very technical, so I can help troubleshoot servers, SSH into things, fix things, that's that sort of stuff. Hey, I'm not real good with technical stuff, but I can help uh, the average Joe get connected or make sure that their audio sounds fine and, and those kinds of things. Or, hey, I'm just a participating community member and I can help moderate chats and, and, and do that kind of thing. But whatever you'd like to do, um, we would love to have you participate, become a part of self. It's a great opportunity to serve the open source community. Again, going back to those people that say, well, I'm not a developer. I don't know how to contribute. This is a way that you can contribute. I will tell you, uh, out of all of the fests that I attend, more people are connected with jobs at Southeast Linux Fest than probably any other. And I, I'm proud to share that with you. And so if you're a person that was hurt by COVID or hurt during the uh, pandemic and you're sitting and not collecting a paycheck, if you have a technical skill set, then we then then you should be aligned with somebody who wants to pay for a technical skill set. And self is the place that you will meet those kinds of people. Self is a great place to build that sort of social network. So I hope 
I really, really hope that you'll join me uh, for the virtual live self event. You can learn more at southeastlinuxfest.org. The music in my ears means we're out of time. This show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can uh, join us live by going to uh, geeklab.ninja. You can join the chat that way, participate in the interactive Jitsi room, and call the program. Very inflexible, or very flexible about how we take your feedback. If you want to follow us on Twitter, at Ask Noah, myself, at Colonel Linux. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.